Uh, if you have your Bibles, the scripture today is Romans three nineteen through 31. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. This is the word of God. Good morning. Okay, today we are going to talk about everybody's favorite subject, law. (laughs) Law is an extremely important subject in the book of Romans. Uh, Paul has a great deal to say about it. He has a great deal to say about it in Galatians and in other letters. And in fact, it's a huge theme throughout the entire Bible. In fact, in the passage that was just read this morning, Paul used the word law 12 times. But in my experience, there's been a great deal of confusion as to what Paul means by the law. And actually, a lot of people tend to just sort of brush over it because they don't understand what he's talking about. Because I am just crazy enough to be interested in the subject of law, and also because I was somewhat confused, a couple of years ago, I bought a book by a highly accomplished theologian, called Paul and the Law. I may have forgotten the name of the theologian, but I have not forgotten his conclusion. After all of his diligent study of all the usages by Paul of the word law, he says at the end, I don't have any idea what Paul meant by the law. (laughs) It's all very confusing and seems to be contradictory. Well, Paul appears to have thought that his meaning was clear. Why is it not often clear to us? I also have the impression, and I don't want to sound irreverent here, but I almost feel like the great apostle is messing with us. It's as if he's saying, so, you think you're righteous because you have obeyed the law. Well, let me show you how little about the law you actually understand. Law is a very big subject in the Bible, as I said. 
And we cannot possibly deal with all of it in one message, but I'd like to try to give something of an introduction or a portal to the subject. And the best way I know how to do that is to tell a personal story. I don't normally like to do that, but I will do it on this occasion. Way back in 1975, I was a first-year student in law school, but I wasn't doing very well. I just didn't get it. And to understand why I didn't get it, you have to understand what the first year of law school was intended to do, or more precisely, what it was intended to do back in the day. It was not intended to actually teach law. It's intended to radically change the way in which you think. Because if you think about it, up to that time, education all too often has been essentially reading books, listening to lectures, and then spitting back on a test what you read or heard. The first year of law school is intended to change all that. And the way it's done is what's called the Socratic method. So they would give us case books which were full of portions of very old judicial decisions, and we were admonished to not look up the definition of anything, not to go to the library, yes, long before the Internet, um, because if we did that, the process wouldn't work. The idea was to force us to figure things out entirely on our own, to develop deductive reasoning and critical thought. Well, as I said, I wasn't doing very well. I'd go to the class, and the professor would stand me up in front of everybody and ask me questions I couldn't possibly answer. And I'd feel like a complete idiot, but then I had to go back and read it again and try to figure it out again. It's not a very nice process, but it does work in terms of developing critical thinking. But at any rate, as I said, I wasn't doing very well, and I had just about made up my mind that I was going to drop out of law school. This wasn't for me. I was going to take my pitifully small amount of personal belongings, throw them in my 1969 Ford Falcon, and, yes, that's right, three on the column, and drive to Alaska. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that if that car would have made it to Alaska that I never would have come back. But just when I was ready to do that, a certain young lady invited me to play tennis with her, and, well... <laughs> I did make it to Alaska, 25 years, four children, and a couple hundred tennis matches later. So, I didn't drop out of law school, but... I was still having a very hard time understanding until one day, and I can't remember exactly when this happened, I was walking along the beach when all of a sudden the proverbial light bulb went off, and I realized what it was I wasn't getting. Because we had been admonished not to look up the definition of anything, it never occurred to me that when people used the word law, they meant entirely different things by the word. Well, once I realized that, it wasn't that hard to figure out what definition of the law a particular judge was using simply by following his reasoning backwards. And once I figured that out, I did just fine in law school the rest of the way. You'll be glad to know. Here are some of the different definitions of the word law that I realized were being used by the judges in those early decisions. The law is whatever one who has the power to make law says that it is and nothing more. 
The law is whatever the judge had for breakfast. Or, law is whatever God has revealed. Nothing else is valid. Or, law may be called natural law because it simply exists in the creative order and can be known by looking at the created order. Or, law is what social scientists who study human behavior have determined to be best. Or, Law is whatever is good for the whole and not the individual. We call that communism. Or, law is whatever has been established by traditions, which must be maintained. Or, law is whatever moves society in a desired direction, and anything that does not do that is not valid and may be ignored. Or, law is whatever serves a political agenda, which has been defined by any particular group. Or, Law is the highest product of human reason. Or law is whatever the majority wants it to be. Now, it would take some time to flesh out all of these views, and there are many more I haven't listed. You probably recognize that most of these ideas are still alive and well in society today. I don't want to leave you with the impression that, in practice, judges and lawyers don't know what the law is. All this was worked out a long time ago, and we really do know what the law is and how it operates. But understanding that people mean different things by the same words helped me uh, very much in the development of my practice. It helped me very much in life. Now, why have I told you all of this? The reason I've told you this is because I hope it will help you to understand that when the Apostle Paul uses the word law, he also means many different things by the word. And that's the key to understanding what he has to say about it. Doing a Greek word search won't help you here because it's the same Greek word nomos, which is used all the time. I think that this is why the theologian I mentioned was confused. He thought in terms of the usage of Greek words. He didn't think in terms of the same word being used in different ways, and he, so he couldn't make it consistent. In order to understand what Paul means by the word law in any passage, verse, or clause, you have to look at the context. That's the only way to understand it. And if you do look at the context, most of the time the meaning becomes clear, although sometimes it's difficult to sort out. Even though Paul uses the same word, he uses different definitions in the same paragraph, the same verse, and sometimes even in the same clause. Now, I looked up the word nomos in Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, which is an excellent resource if you don't have it. Vine says that there are basically five different ways in which the word law is used in the New Testament. I humbly suggest that there are many more than that. But these are the five that Vine's gives. He says, law may mean a general principle which may either be a wisdom principle or a law of nature. Law may mean a force impelling to action. Law may mean the Mosaic law, the written code of the law, the commandments. Or law may be used broadly to mean all of the scriptures, the law and the prophets. Or law may mean just the Torah, the first five books of Moses, which, of course, contain much that we would not ordinarily call law, like much narrative history. All of these definitions are certainly used. But here's another way to look at it. Here's a partial list of the different definitions of the word law used by the Apostle Paul. 
And we could easily look at the other apostles as well because they do the same thing. In Galatians 6, verse 2, we read this. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what's the law of Christ? That which Christ taught, the principles by which Christ lived, all that he has and all that he has done. Or look at Romans chapter 2, verses 14 to 15. There we read this. For when Gentiles who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So here we have the principle that a basic consciousness of God and a basic moral conscience are implanted into everyone by the Creator, so that even without knowledge of the written code of the law, people are without excuse because the basic principles of right and wrong are known by them, no matter how much they may try to suppress it. In Romans 3, verse 27, which was read this morning, we read this. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by a law of faith. The law of works is obedience to a list of rules and a set of accomplishments. The law of faith demands only faith on man's part. Then in Romans chapter 7, we read this. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what is right, evil is close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. In these two sentences, Paul has used the word law in five different ways. There is the law or basic principle that evil is close at hand and fights against my desire to do what is right. There is the law of God in our inner being, meaning the basic substance of the character and the moral goodness of God. There is the law or basic fact of spiritual warfare and the war of the flesh or against the flesh. There is the law of my mind, meaning what I want to do, but often cannot do. And there is the law of sin that dwells in me, meaning the principle that my flesh will always desire to sin. In Romans chapter 8, verses 2 to 4, we read this. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Here again, Paul uses the word law in different ways in these two sentences. There is the law of the spirit of life, the wonderful principle of the gospel that life as well as freedom is found in Christ and faith in him and not in obedience to a list of rules. But there is also the law of sin and death, the inescapable fact or principle 
that the wages of sin are death. There is the Mosaic law, which Paul says is weakened by the flesh, which I take to mean cannot be fulfilled or obeyed in the human strength. There is the righteous requirement of the law, which probably means the broader meaning and purpose behind the commandments, which meaning reflects the fulfillment of the law by Christ and the character of God, which Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 5. It's an interesting fact that Paul almost never quotes Jesus, although he obviously was familiar with what Christ said. Remember, he spent two weeks alone with Peter and spent time with the other disciples. Paul would have known what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, even though he never mentions it. Remember that Jesus said he had fulfilled the law, and then he gave six examples as to what he meant by that. He said, you have heard that it used to be said, but I say unto you, and he does that six times by way of examples. And then he gives what the fulfillment of the law or the greater purpose and meaning of the law and shows how it points towards the the very character of God. But that is a large subject for another day. In Romans chapter 9, verses 31 to 32, we read this. Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. Here we have the idea that the Mosaic law would lead to righteousness if it were pursued in faith, because faith is the key to the fulfillment of the law. But since they saw it as a law of works, meaning they thought that what God cared about was strict obedience to a list of rules, they failed. God wants our hearts, not mere compliance with rules. But here it needs to be said, There is a place for rules. The rules are a starting point. We also need to fall back upon them when things are not clear, such as when we are under temptation. Rules help to make clear when we are sinning, but they also open the door to the greater will and purpose of God. Then in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 to 10, we read this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Here we have as a kind of conclusion the wonderful principle that love fulfills all of the commandments. Rightly understood, if we love God and love one another, we will find that we have obeyed the commandments, not because we are trying to obey a list of rules, but because they're all included in the principle of love, which means putting the interests of others before ourselves. If you think about it, all sin, all breaking of the commandments comes down to putting ourselves first. But real love and obedience to the commandments comes down to putting others before ourselves. Paul says the same thing in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This is, of course, another way of saying what Jesus himself said. When he was asked which commandment is the most important of all, 
he said, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We read that in Mark chapter 12, verses 29 to 31. So, I encourage you to think about the different definitions of the word law, which Paul uses when you read passages such as the one that was read this morning. I don't have time to go through it and discuss the 12 different references to the law in that passage. But when you do, ask yourself, how is Paul using the word in this reference? If you understand the different ways in which he uses the word, you can usually determine which one by the context of the word, the clause, or the paragraph. Is he referring to the written code of the law? Is he referring to the whole of the Torah or the whole of scriptures? Is he referring to natural principles which God has created? Is he referring to the work of Christ and bringing freedom through faith? How else is he using it? We need to brood upon the word of God. We need to ask questions about everything. We need to reason through it. We need to seek the light of the Spirit and to implore God to reveal the meaning to us. Treasure is only found by those who dig, and digging is hard work. One of the most dominant themes of the book of Romans is that through Christ we are free from the bondage to the written code of the law and to having to try to live up to a list of rules. But there is also the law of Christ and the law of liberty and freedom in Christ. Paul says several times that this does not negate the written code of the law, but fulfills it as Christ himself taught. Because all of the principles of right and wrong contained in the code of the law, rightly understood, are part of the very character of God. And when the Holy Spirit lives in us, he reminds us of these principles as the Apostle John explains. Here are a few key facts to remember in conclusion. First, God the Creator established natural physical laws such as the law of gravity. I once saw a bumper sticker that said, gravity, it's not just a good idea, it's the law. God also established laws of cause and effect. One action will ordinarily cause a certain result. This is what wisdom is all about. The Proverbs and similar portions of Scripture are lists or observations about these natural laws of cause and effect. If you do this, then you can expect that to happen. But if you do that, you can expect this to happen. Third, God also established basic moral laws, which are based upon his very character. We are told in Scripture to copy him. We are to love because he is love. We are to be merciful because he is merciful. We are to be patient because he is patient. We are to be faithful because he is faithful. To be forgiving because he is forgiving, etc. God's character is the basis for Christian morality and for all moral law. Fourth, there are basic moral laws which are built into each person. 
Everyone has this, no matter how much they may deny it or try to suppress it. But when you know Christ, a light is turned on, and you can begin to see them clearly. Fifth, at a point in history, God chose to reveal a written code, the Ten Commandments and other rules of the Mosaic Law. These were intended to be a blessing, and obedience to them was a blessing. But mankind does not have the ability to perfectly obey a list of rules, and that was not the point anyway. The point was to draw us to God and his character through faith. As Paul explains, these laws made it clear when we were sinning. If that was all there was to the law, we would despair, but it isn't. As Jesus told the disciples on the road to Emmaus, all of the law and the prophets testify to him. He is the fulfillment of the law. And the closer we are to him, the more we will find that we have obeyed the intent of the law. Sixth, the law and the prophets contains the narrative history of Israel in addition to the Mosaic Code. In this broad sense, the entire Old Testament contains the law of God. In an even broader sense, any revelation by God, whether it is in creation or in the Bible, is a kind of law. Seventh, the overwhelming work of Christ brought a new covenant or a new law based on his provision for sin by paying the penalty for all and entering into his people by faith, confirmed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This may be expressed as different types of laws, the law of faith, the law of love, the law of liberty, etc. And lastly, you may think of the law simply as the will of God, however and whenever it is manifested. So, which of these best fits the usage of the word in any verse? Look at the context. And as in studying all of Scripture, we need to pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit as to the meaning. God reveals meaning by His Spirit when He chooses to do so, and it's often surprising. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You revealed Your law, Your Word, when You gave us the Bible, when You came and lived among us and demonstrated your fulfillment of the law and your very personality and character. Lord, help us to think more creatively, to dig into your word, to ask what the real meaning behind it is, and not to fall into the trap of thinking that one word means the same thing in every context. Help us to look at the context. Give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit in our hearts as we do so, that we might obey the intent and purpose of the law and not merely follow the rules. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.